Food has the power to do much more than nourish our bodies. Just the taste of a certain dish can conjure up vivid memories of people and places in our past. Hi, I'm George Bodarki, and this is Cityscape. Our guest today is Peter Gathers. He's an author, screenwriter, playwright, book editor, and film and television producer. His latest book pays tribute to his mom, Judy Gathers, who was a celebrated cook and cookbook writer. It's called My Mother's Kitchen, Breakfast, Lunch, Dinner, and the Meaning of Life. Peter, welcome to Cityscape. Thank you so much. Happy to be here. So finish this line. Food is... Kind of the reason for living in my my particular instance. Uh, I guess I have a reasonably non-spiritualistic view of life. So I think we're here for a short period of time. And food is one of the great pleasures that we can experience while we're here. So uh, that's kind of the way I would define it is so the food becomes one of the real reasons for being. Now, food and your family really have a very, very deep connection. Your mom's family owned Ratner's, which was a famous Jewish restaurant in the Lower East Side of Manhattan. It was one of the true legendary Jewish dairy restaurants in the world. People would come from everywhere imaginable around the globe to eat there. And uh, as I always say, the food was incredible, but it was not what you would call health food. You can basic, you could basically feel your arteries harden <laughs> before your lunch was over. So what kind of food did they serve up there? It was really a wide variety of, you know, and I was interesting because I was talking with a great Jewish cookbook writer recently, Joan Nathan, and I was trying to get a definition of Jewish food. And she said, there really is no definition because it's Russian food, it's Polish food, it's German food, and that's what Ratner's was. It was incredible borscht. They were legendary for their onion rolls, which I can still taste and sometimes dream about. There's a photo of the onion rolls in this book. Yes, because they were just so spectacular, and they were sitting on the table and free in big baskets, and people just stuffed themselves Uh They had uh, really my favorite thing. They were incredible potato pancakes that they used to cut into French fry-like strips that were just so delicious. Everything on the menu was great. It was as I got older, I began to appreciate how how good it actually was. Because as a kid, I didn't eat, you know, their broiled sizzling fish and things like that. I was going for the carbs, but it was incredible food, and it was a crazy place. Um, It was a celebrity hangout. Well, it was, but it was crazy for all sorts of reasons because, first of all, the waiters, especially by the time I was going there, I would say the waiter, the youngest waiter was probably 85. And so by the time the soup came to the table, if you ordered a bowl of soup, you had a cup of soup left because they were just spilling it all over the place. And they would give you what they wanted to give you instead of what you wanted and what you ordered. So it was just very eccentric and because for a long stretch it was open 24 hours a day that you would get originally when when the in the 20s and 30s it was a big place for jewish gangsters which i completely loved because as a kid the idea of jews and gangsters didn't go in my mind you know tough guys and jews were not something that were freely associated so the names kind of killed me because there were People who were pretty celebrated gangsters with names like Dopey Benny Fine, and I just loved all that stuff. And my aunts and my grandpa- my grandfather used to tell stories that Bugsy Siegel and people like that would come in and have breakfast and 
plot their crimes at a table in the back room, then go out and do their dastardly deeds and come back for lunch. So I just loved all that. And then it became kind of a weirdly hip place with rock stars and actors and politicians because they always wanted the Jewish vote were always hanging around and it was used in movies. And it was a pretty amazing place. Quite sadly, though, I think the last time you were at Ratner's, you left with a sour taste in your mouth. And that's not because of the food. <laughs> not because of the sour <laughs> cream or anything. No. You know, one of one of the things my book is about uh, is and one of the reasons why I called it my mother's kitchen is because it's it's really while my mother is at the center of it and food is at the periphery of it. I think of it as a book about family. And one of the things I began to realize is that food holds families together in many ways, but it also doesn't necessarily hold families together. So it's interesting to me because people have really been responding to this personally, whereas I thought this might be too personal in the book. So I write about my mother's family and how, you know, they were not perfect. And after my grandfather died, the core of the family kind of fell apart and the restaurant went downhill because they were not so interested in food. And as my mother used to say, who was a serious food person, you, you can't really trust people who don't really, really appreciate the value of food, who are dismissive of food. And my uncle and my cousins kind of ran it into the ground. And as a kid, one of my great pleasures because I couldn't believe I could do this, was going into a restaurant and stuffing my face and not having to pay a bill because I was a family member. Well, as soon as my cousins took over, that was the end of the freebies. So, uh, yeah, I, it, it just... You were shocked when your cousin gave you a bill for your meal. Well, the waiter, who I had known since I was a an infant, basically, gave me the bill. And I thought, well, he's 95 years old. He probably just has forgotten who I am. And I reminded him and he looked embarrassed and said, well, your cousin said to give you a bill. And so I went up there and said, really, after all these years? And so I said, our our grandfather would be spinning in his grave because my grandfather is such a generous, wonderful person. And then I said, you know, I'll never come in here again. And then I realized, well, that wasn't actually a threat. <laughs> that was kind of the desired result. So I never really did go back. Perhaps, ironically, your mother never worked at Ratner's. No, but what she did do, all the other siblings, not all, but my mother had many siblings, and most of them worked there at some point. Even I worked there one summer, uh, which was a total nightmare. But um, she never worked there, but she did write a, a fantastic book that stayed in print for many, many years, The Ratner's, I think it was called The World Famous Ratner's Meatless cookbook. So that was really her first foray into that world of cookbook writing. And But no, she didn't work there. We just ate there until we didn't. Your mother took her first job in a kitchen at 53 years old, yes, right? It's a very cool story. My Again, she had the Ratner's background, which again was a famous restaurant, but not what you would call a sophisticated restaurant. My parents, because my father was in the television business, moved to Los Angeles. We all did. And 
they grew into a sort of separate new identity. They were moving in more sophisticated circles. My father loved to entertain. He was a very generous person, and he loved food and wine and drink and sharing. So my mother became an accomplished entertainer, but she thought she wasn't good enough. My parents were restaurant people, and there was a hot new restaurant in Los Angeles called Ma Maison, which had a baby chef who was not then very well-known, a guy named Wolfgang Puck. (laughs) Now very well-known. Now fairly (laughs) well-known, yes. And my parents used to go to the restaurant all the time, and I happened to be there, and my mother took me and a girlfriend out to lunch. I had not been yet. And the owner came over to say hello to her, and he sat down with us, and she said, you know, I'd like to become a really good French cook. What should I do? And she said, why don't you come to work here three nights a week, and you'll basically be our slave, but at the end of a year, you'll be a terrific French cook. And I remember sitting there thinking, yeah, that'll never happen, and my dad will never allow it. And my mother instantly said, okay, and my dad was thrilled because he recognized that it was time for her to grow and change. And so she went to work there for free three nights a week, I think two nights in one day. And within a year... They opened up a cooking school called Ma Cuisine, which she ran, and she was not only cooking and teaching cooking next to people like Julia Child, she became really the mother to all these baby chefs because they were all so young and had left home so young to Wolfgang Puck and John Waxman, who has restaurants all over the country, and Nancy Silverton, who's one of the great geniuses of the food world. And my mother became this doyenne of the food world. And, you know, over the next couple of decades, you couldn't go into a restaurant where people wouldn't bow and scrape in front of her. So it was kind of amazing, and it changed her life completely. She wound up writing many cookbooks and teaching cooking and and just becoming really the queen of the New York, L.A. food world. It was, and it changed our whole family. I was going to say it changed her life, but it also changed your life. And you say this in the book that it not only changed your palate and your personal life, but also your career. Completely. You know, what I say in, in the book is that ever since this happened and my mother took her job, basically no major decision that I've made in my life hasn't revolved around food or drink, which I don't know if it's a good thing or a bad thing, but it's a true thing. And I even wound up buying this little cottage, which was a crazy thing to do in the middle of nowhere in Sicily because it was on the grounds of a 13th century abbey that's the best restaurant in Sicily. And I thought, oh, if I can live here part-time, I can just eat their pasta all the time. So I bought a cottage. I mean, it was crazy. But I now, in addition to writing, I I have an odd and varied career. I do a lot of things, but I also edit books for the Knopf Group and Random House Inc., Penguin Random House Inc. So I edit cookbooks. I edit edit people like Lydia Bastianich, and I edit Nancy Silverton and Suzanne Gowen, and I edited a great cookbook by a guy named Kenny Shopson, who has probably the most eccentric restaurant in all of New York City. And I've produced food shows for the Food Network, cooking shows, and yeah, my my life changed on every possible level. You mentioned that your mother had the opportunity to work with Julia Child. Yeah. 
but she wasn't so much a fan of Julia Child's lunch. Well, you know, it's funny. Uh, Yes, my mother was working and cooking and teaching alongside Julia, and like everybody, was in awe of Julia. And I remember I had moved to New York. I was living in New York by this point. My mother and my parents were in Los Angeles, and I talked to my mother, and I'd never heard her so excited. She said that Julia had invited her and my mother's friend up to Julia's house in Santa Barbara for lunch. And really, that I, I can't even come up with the equivalent, but but it's like... You know, if if you're a musician, Sinatra inviting you over or mm-hmm. the Beatles, you know, I mean, it's it doesn't get any better than that. And, you know, it's like I guess it's like the Beatles saying, oh, come on over. We're going to have a few people in and we're going to sing, you know, so this is Julia Child. Come on up and I'll cook for you. And I said to my mother, you have to tell me and call me instantly and let me know how it is. Two days pass and I hadn't heard a word. So finally I call her and I go, so so how was it? And she goes. It was fine. And I said, no, what? And finally she says, you can never tell this to anybody. And I said, okay. And she said, it was horrible. (laughs) And she described the meal and it was just inedible. And she said, she's a genius. She's brilliant. She's the best teacher in the world. And then she kind of lowers her voice and says, but but I don't think she can really cook that well. And so I didn't tell anybody for years because my mother swore me to secrecy. But I figure time has passed and it was a, a story worth telling because it just really made me laugh and she was so shocked. You say this about your mom, that she could deconstruct almost any dish. After tasting it, she could recreate it from scratch. Yeah. You know, I love food and I don't have a great palate and it drives me crazy. I mean, I wish I did, but I, I enjoy what I enjoy. But You know, if I'm writing something and if I'm editing something, I can deconstruct a book because that's my world is a world of words. But what's amazing to me is my mother could eat a piece of candy and then make it. And so it would taste exactly as it came out of a box or, you know, or a can or whatever. Or she could she could eat you know, a fancy meal at a restaurant and without the recipe, she could recreate it because her palate became so fine. It was such, it was like being an artist. And and in the book, I actually use this as an example. As an editor, I once got to work with a real genius, a, a great art critic named Robert Hughes. And Bob Hughes said that fishing is what taught him to be an art critic because fishing is about looking at the calm surface of the water and trying to ascertain all the things roiling underneath, which is what an art critic does or which is what any critic does. And my mother had that ability. She could see something on the surface, which was a dish and taste it and understand all the complicated things that had gone into making it and then make it. It was astonishing to me, although that's what great chefs do. I wish I had that ability, but I don't. Your mother suffered two strokes and yet still maintained that palate. My mother was quite extraordinary. And what really made me write the book is as incredible as the, as interesting as the first act of her life was and as incredible as the second act of her life was to me, which was the post-Mamaison era, what was really extraordinary were the third, fourth, and fifth acts of her life, and they were so inspiring, 
yes, she had two. My mother had had many horrible diseases her whole life. She had six or seven cancers, and after each one, they told her she should be dead. And she had two crippling strokes. The second one, they told me she would never move or speak again. They told me she had locked-in syndrome. And six weeks after that, she walked into a friend's Christmas party. And a month after that, she moved back into her home. She just refused to buckle under. And especially in the last seven or eight years of her life, after her second stroke, because there are many things she just couldn't do for herself, she couldn't cook anymore. But her palate and her taste remained. And so one of the things I did was I hired a cook to come in once a week and prepare two or three meals for her and talk to my mother about food. And so one, it was great speech therapy and thought therapy. But really, the one thing that absolutely remained was my mother's taste. And it was hilarious because, you know, again, she was very aphasic by this point. It was hard for her to come up with nouns in particular. So you would, she would say, get the, and you'd go, I don't know what you mean. And she'd say, the things in the second drawer from the left in the cabinet. And she meant napkin, mm. right? But it was she had to get there in a roundabout yeah. way. But then if you were having dinner with her, you'd say, so how's the duck? And all aphasia would be gone. It's like you hear that people can sing when they can't talk after yeah, a stroke. Yeah. My mother could talk food perfectly. You'd say, how's the duck? And suddenly she'd be going, a little too much salt, not enough rosemary, quite good, but a little overcooked, just like that. And you go, well, where did this come from? <laughs> so taste and food became a real means of connection for her to the real world. And that's one of the things I started to think about how interesting that was when I wrote this book and began to cook, which is the essence of the book, all the recipes I cooked for my mother. I, I had her pick. You wanted your mother to provide you with her dream menu, Breakfast, lunch, and dinner. Mm-hmm which she did, which took some doing because she was pretty aphasic, and and she did. And I learned I, I like to cook, and I'm an okay cook. Well, you say in the book that you don't like to follow recipes. Right. I don't like to follow any instructions whatsoever, so recipes are a nightmare for me. The same way I could never build a model plane as a kid. I would read half the instructions and then just zone out. So I like to cook when I can go, oh, I think I'll do this, I think I'll do this. But I learned to cook a wide range of foods for my mother. The idea was to throw a big feast for her before she died um, with all her friends and loved ones and all the people who were important to her and to whom she was quite important. Some of the things were very easy, like matzo brai and chocolate pudding, and Two, some incredibly complicated things. The first thing Wolfgang ever taught my mother to make was something called a salmon kulabiak. So that's maybe for my mom was the most important recipe in the book from an emotional standpoint. That took me, with the aid of a friend, two days and a lot of bourbon to actually get through and cook. It turned out great, but it was hard. And then the probably the funniest part of the whole book is... My mother loved quail, and I learned the reason why relatively recently, when she was probably 90, 
because we were having chicken and I went to give her a piece of white meat and she said, no, I, I like the dark meat. I went, no, you don't. You always only ate white meat when we were growing up. And she went, that's because your father and you and your brother like dark meat. So you got the dark meat and I mm. ate the white meat, which defined my mother to a T. But she used to make what I thought was an incredibly sophisticated dish, quail. And then it turned out she liked it and made it because it was so small, you didn't have to share quail. So she got her own dark meat because you got individual <laughs> little birds. So that was on her menu. So I spent a couple of days and and cooked it, and it was actually delicious. So Your so, mom didn't live long enough for you to throw this meal for her, though, unfortunately. No, what, she died right before I was, or a few months before I was ready to have this feast. And um, so it was her memorial. We did it as her memorial, which was quite wonderful and moving. And I prepared her favorite pasta and I prepared all sorts of things for 70 people, which was a cooking feat in itself. I did have some help, definitely. But so it was, it was kind of a fitting and wonderful memorial. And it was, as I started saying at the very beginning, I think life is to be celebrated, and that that's what we did, was we celebrated her life instead of mourning her death. I love what you say about your mom in the book. You write that your mother's food has always been exactly like your mother, appealing, comforting, genuine, unpretentious, at times whimsical, always elegant, and always with a certain unknowable complexity. That is completely true. That was my mother to a T. She was a woman with... A lot of surprising layers, many of which I uncovered while cooking for her over the course of writing this book and having conversations with her. When I said she had inspiring third, fourth, and fifth acts, everyone thought after her stroke, first of all, everyone thought changing her life and career in her 50s, that was amazing enough. Then after my father died, when people thought she would really kind of disappear, really. She did just the opposite and showed extraordinary strength and traveled around the world and went on to, to really have a major career. And then after her stroke, which people thought, okay, this has got to be the most incredible period of her life because I, I, I always say this to people, when my mother was 90, and, and she was really had a severe stroke, I would call her up and, and say, Mom, I was just told about this great restaurant. It's downtown. I think we should go there. And my mother would go, been there. And I go, <laughs> it, it just opened a week ago. How is this possible? And she said, been there. And I go, Mom, seriously, you're a 90-year-old stroke-ridden <laughs> woman. You can barely walk. How can you still be beating me to all the hot new restaurants? And she would just laugh and go, sorry, been there. <laughs> so we thought that would be her incredible sort of summary of her life. And no, what was even more amazing were the final few months where I was told she was rushed to the hospital. I was told she had two or three days a week tops to live. She was brought home to home hospice care because she didn't want to die in the hospital. And I here's what the doctors told me. They said, again, two, three days, a week tops. She won't be able to eat. She'll just have ice chips 
and then she'll fade away fairly quickly over the next few days. And I said, okay. And I talked to my mother when she was home from the hospital and we talked about, was she afraid? And she said, no, she was tired. She'd lived a long time and had a great life. She was 93. To make a very long story short and quite a few pages in the book, three weeks after that, she went out to lunch with her hospice nurse and had a pastrami sandwich. <laughs> and her doctor, I said to her doctor, is this possible? And he went, no, it's actually impossible. <laughs> and she came to Thanksgiving dinner and uh, she lived four or five more months enjoying every minute of it. And it was just remarkably inspirational. And and then finally, she I have to say, she died in a way we should all root for ourselves to go. She was in bed at age 93, steps from her own kitchen, which was important to her. Her aide, her nurse gave her a hot chocolate, which was her favorite thing in life. She had part of her hot chocolate, put it down, said she had enough, closed her eyes and died. Wow. And so you go, you know what? So people even say, people would call me afterwards and say, it must be so hard for you because I was very close to my mother that some people have called this book a mother-son love story. And I said, I would say, no, it really isn't. That The love part was sort of a given with me and my parents. What's interesting to me is this is a mother-son friendship story, that the older we both got, the better friends we became. And that is really interesting to me. But um, I'd say, no, yes, I feel a loss, but I feel a loss for the world because the world lost an amazing person but it's very hard to grieve or feel truly sad for someone who lived to 93, lived the way my mother lived, and died the way my mother died. It, it's it's not sad. It's sad for the world, but happy for her. You mentioned that chocolate pudding yes. was on your mother's menu. And this is Louise Trotty's chocolate pudding. So first of all, who is Louise Trotty? This is a complicated story, and I'll do my best to describe it. When my father was 13 years old and living in Brooklyn, his mother was dying. She was sick and dying. And my dad's father, my grandfather, said to him, go to the employment agency and find someone who can come back and cook and take care of the family and take care of your mother. On his way to the employment agency, at a bus stop, He stopped and started talking to a young black woman who had just arrived from South Carolina, and he brought her home, and she went to work for his family, and my my grandmother died not long after that, so Louise raised my dad, his brother, and his sister. When my father got married, he was a struggling, unsuccessful actor at first, and he moved into Stuyvesant Town. In, in lower Manhattan. And Louise would come twice a week and clean my parents' apartment and do some cooking and look after the kids and then leave 20 bucks because my dad needed the money and he couldn't pay her. And then she wound up moving with us to the suburbs and she wound up moving with us to Los Angeles and she was very much a second mother. I think of her as a mother, but it sounds funny because my mother was a very visible and present mother, but Louise was really a second mother, and she was an incredible person, uneducated. She never learned to read, and she was a great cook, 
And when we lived in West Nyack, New York, my mother was around 40 and I was eight or something, my mother got cancer, a melanoma, was told that she had a 5% chance of living 12 more months. Part of my job was to fatten her up because she'd lost so much weight after the operation and the illness. So I would make her milkshakes when I came home from school and make sure she ate desserts. And our favorite dessert was this chocolate pudding that Louise Trotty used to make. And I have an incredible memory of being a young boy and Louise making chocolate pudding and giving me the wooden spoon so I could lick the hot, the warm chocolate pudding and eat the skin around the pot and the bowl. And and my mother used to eat it at that time. And of course, she didn't die. She went on to live for decades. And as part of this book, I did make the chocolate pudding and gave it to my mother. And one of the interesting things about getting older and having your parents age is there's a role reversal. So suddenly I was feeding my 93-year-old mother the wooden spoon and no words were spoken and no words were needed. We both knew that I was being transported back to eight, nine, 10 years old and my mother was transported back to being 40 years old. And it was like a time machine. And it was incredibly warm and bonding. Yeah, I, I think that's probably my very favorite history and story in the book. The chocolate, If I had to pick one recipe that for me had the most resonance, it would be the chocolate pudding. Well, the book is My Mother's Kitchen, Breakfast, Lunch, Dinner, and the Meaning of Life. Peter Gathers, thank you so much for coming in. Oh, thank you. That was just great. My Mother's Kitchen, Breakfast, Lunch, Dinner, and the Meaning of Life by Peter Gathers is out now from Henry Holt and Company. And that's it for this week's Cityscape. My thanks to producers Zach Zalas and Claire Drake. I'm George Boldarki. Thanks so much for listening. It's WFUV and WFUV HD New York. Listener-supported public media from Fordham, the Jesuit University of New York. Music discovery starts here.